Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Today I'll be speaking with Susan Ellsworth. Susan Ellsworth formed and serves as the Executive Director of Indiana NOFOS Incorporated, a not-for-profit corporation serving families and individuals with prenatal exposure to substances and alcohol. And she is the Director of Perinatal Substance Use and Family Advocacy for Mental Health America of Indiana. Susan is the NOFAS Affiliate Coordinator for the NOFAS Network. She serves on the Family and Youth Committee for Indiana's Systems of Care Council. Susan served as the Indiana Title V Delegate from 2013 to 2016. She co-chaired the Family Advisory Council for Children's Special Health Care Needs, which empowers family leaders. Susan serves on several state committees, which include the Commission for Improving the Status of Children, focused on improving mental health for youth, the Prenatal Substance Abuse Committee, which seeks to reduce the number of children exposed to substances and alcohol, the Indiana Perinatal Quality Improvement Committee, and Governing Council. She was a family fellow with Riley Child Development Blend Program. Indiana NOFAS is a subsidiary of Mental Health America of Indiana, which seeks to support and provide services to individuals and their families while advocating for positive system change in a holistic manner across the lifespan. Welcome to this episode of FASD Hope. I am with someone who I think is a rock star, not only because she has silver, short, spiked hair, you know, like yours truly, but she is just a rock star because she is an FASD advocate, parent advocate. She teaches and educates in so many wonderful, accessible ways. I refer a lot of people to her classes. And um, she is also the mama of, of kiddos that have an FASD. And she lives in one of my favorite states, Indiana, which I have a heart for. So I am welcoming my friend and fellow rock star advocate, Susan Ellsworth to FASD Hope. Susan, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so super excited to be here. It is my pleasure. And I know a little bit about your family's journey, but for our audience members, can you share your family's journey and how you became involved in the FASD community? Sure. We were foster parents for the state of Indiana for 12 years. During those 12 years, we adopted nine children um, from the system and five had prenatal alcohol exposure. It didn't take very long to find out that um, I needed to be informed. I mean, I was leaving the state. I was going to other states. I was making phone calls. I was taking trainings and I was educating my medical providers, the teachers, everybody. 
So it didn't take long to be known as a family advocate. It didn't take long to be known as a topic expert, um, just because there wasn't anybody around who really understood or knew what was going on. They uh, would talk a little bit like, when you start getting next to the sensory integration issues and ADHD, they're like, oh, it's, it sounds just like autism. And you're like, um, it, it has a lot of similarities, but the cause is completely different and, and it manifests itself differently. So we've been um, parenting our kids for, it feels like forever at this point. Um, and they've transitioned, several of them have transitioned from being those teeny little two and three month olds to uh, being 15 now and, and so forth. And so I, I kid about the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm like, is that really a light or a train coming? I'm not really <laughs> sure which it, which it is. <laughs> but the journey through those different stages um, is incredible because what it looks like in a two-month-old is not what it looks like in a four-year-old, is not what it looks like in a seven and eight-year-old. And when you hit those teen years, it's like, holy smokes, this should have came with a warning that says bumpy ride ahead. So, and we're just kind of all in the midst of that right now with one of our 15 year olds because COVID just, it, it just derailed him in such a phenomenal way that, that he's still recovering from that. We're still recovering from that. So it's been an adventure with a capital A. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I just relate to you so much, you know, as, as a mom, because you just hit it right on the head. Those teen years, that's when we started in our sense, seeing the exacerbation of those, what we now know as primary symptoms, moving on to secondary symptoms and even tertiary symptoms. You know, the combination of the brain damage from the prenatal alcohol exposure and those neurons kind of like, you know, that were supposed to have been pruned that weren't pruned and then hormones, you know, it, it really, we hear from, from listeners who, who are like, I need help. I have this teenager and blah, 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 and this and that. And that's where you and I are both, we're both so passionate about this national FASD legislation because there needs to be supports for those teens as well as from the beginning, you know, all the way through the life cycle. So yeah, yeah, I hear you. So as a mom of children with FASD, you started becoming known as, you know, the, the go-to person for educating providers, you know, educational professionals, a whole bunch of different people. When did you actually make then that professional leap from FASD mom to FASD educator, trainer, advocate? As a family leader, I had an opportunity to uh, do a leadership program with Riley Child Developmental Center who had the LIN program. I was a family fellow and you had to have a project for your family fellow. And I was thinking about what am I going to do? And my supervisor, she was like, it's right in front of your face. You need to start a nonprofit for FASD. I was like, oh, okay. So 2014 started the nonprofit um, from the dining room table, just thinking I was doing a project, right? Um, but it didn't, of course, didn't end there because then as people knew that you had some expertise on the topic, you got, you got opportunities. And so we became 
incorporated nonprofit and we became an affiliate of NoFast National. And then um, I was, my first grant was actually, it, it, it doesn't happen to very many people this way and I know how fortunate I am. Um, our Department of Mental Health and Addiction um, said, hey, um, I have some money for you. And so I didn't really have to apply. It wasn't a large sum of money, but I took that money and was faithful with it and demonstrated that I could manage it and could do big things with a little bit of that money. And it kind of grew from there. And then in 2017, we became a subsidiary of Mental Health America of Indiana. And every contract, our grant uh, just gets bigger. And um, we're, we've gone from begging people just to talk to us to people saying, hey, will you do a training for us? Uh, we've done some social media campaigns that have been pretty successful because you have to leverage your dollars when you don't have very many. And we've done some of those that have uh, gone pretty well for us. And we're actually had an interview with SAMHSA um, wanting to know about our prevention program in Indiana and the details of how we put that prevention program together. And they would like to follow us and help us get from those innovative ideas all the way through the process till we can finally get enough documentation to be quote evidence-based because that makes the world go around. Um, and even though you and I know it's like, what's evidence one day, the next day is junk because it worked one day, but it doesn't work the next exactly. day. Exactly. Doesn't work. It works for this one child, but it doesn't work for the other child. And so it's just a constant every day weaving in the dark with a pin light flashlight, trying to figure out what's what we're going to try today and what's going to work. Um, so we've been we've been pretty successful. Uh, it, we fight the opioids, of course. Um, Indiana is a hotbed for fighting opioids. That's been hard. And then once we started seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, on the opioids going, you know, there's other things we could spend prevention dollars on besides opioids and oh, COVID pandemic, yay. Men's drinking up 20 or 41%. Yeah, exactly. So, so then the, the money has gone kind of there too, but um, that it, it took, that was when it started becoming really serious and um, building those. And I think um, one of the hardest parts, I think, for me and my job is when I get those phone calls from parents um, and, and, and I felt it, I've been there where you just don't think you can take that next step or you're so disheartened, you, you feel so hopeless and you're just wondering how you're even going to get through the rest of the afternoon. And some of the parents, they're just, they're done. And when they call you, they're saying, I'm looking for help, but the first question is, do you have any residential facilities? And, um, and you're walking them through it, and, and my heart is to want to equip them. My heart is to want to provide something for them, but in a state that doesn't have very many services, all I can do is offer my experience and support because there is no magic formula. There's no silver bullet. There's no follow this A, B, and C, and the rest of your parenting, this individual will just be happy. You know, it, it's, 
it, it doesn't work. And it's really hard when I hang out from those phone calls because I just feel it so much in my spirit of how, how hard it is for um, parents. That's the toughest part of my job. Doing the trainings, getting to speak, those things are fun, but really um, trying to find ways to bring hope to families and keep them encouraged just to get through the next day is, is super challenging. Yeah, I hear you because we will receive emails and messages from parents in similar situations. You know, I'm at the end of my rope. Do you know of any residential facilities? Do you know of any this and that? And it's so challenging because we knew that if we could go back like 15 years in time, you know, to, to where it started. And, and again, nothing is, is like you said, nothing is guaranteed. You know, it's like the movie groundhog day, you wake up one day and that works. And then the next day, no, that didn't work. So we know that this legislation is so important because it's a first step in that acknowledgement. Okay. This is a developmental disability. We're in crisis. It's a mental health crisis. It's an addiction crisis. It's an everything crisis and getting not only the national support and the national recognition, but that state support each state has, you know, because it sounds like Indiana, we have similar issues in North Carolina. And, and, you know, I hear similar issues all around the country and all around the world. Yeah. Those calls are heartbreaking. And I think also you and I know, because we have experienced those moments, we've experienced those points in the journey. And even though our kids may be stable at a period of time, we, we always know that it can change just like Groundhog Day. It can change the next day, you know? So that's why I see you as a, as a torchbearer of hope. You know, our, our podcast is named FASD Hope, but I see Indiana NOFAS and I see you as a torchbearer of hope because you are like, you're in it, you know it, you, you live it and you're fighting for it. That's why I just, it's so many ways I'm like fangirling and I'm just like, yeah, Susan, you know? <laughs> So, so let's talk about your current work, because one of the things I love to see, especially like I followed you on LinkedIn and I follow your, your Indiana NOFA socials are these lunch hour CEU one hour, one credit, awesome classes. When did you come up with that idea? Because I think that's brilliant, not only for families to get an introduction and other people, but especially social workers, teachers, nurses, when, when did that idea come, come to you? We started doing lunch and learns about um, a, over a year ago. I think the lunch and learns really took off when COVID happened um, because a lunch and learn uh, doesn't work too well when you're doing it in person because somebody's got only got an hour for lunch. You got to drive there, get your lunch, blah, blah, blah. But when we had COVID, um, it really kind of took off and it's a good, uh, it's a good hour, right? It, it gives... The um, FASD in a nutshell is our one hour. And it's kind of a introductory high flyover. So we're gonna, we're defining FASD. We're talking about prevalence rates. We're talking about how will you know if you're dealing with or seeing or should be having this discussion about could prenatal alcohol exposure be a possibility here? And then it also talks about um, why it's important. 
because I think people, when they think of FASD, they want to isolate it and they want to put it over here. Like it just belongs to this small group of people and it only affects them. And they don't realize that we're talking, yes, our nervous system has been changed. Our brain has been changed, but it has an impact on the body. It definitely has an impact on our mental health. It has an impact on our education system. I don't think there's one system that somebody could name that we can't say, um, hello, it ties to it. So we throw in those facts in our um, nutshell too, so they can understand that this is just not one of those one in a million things that happen to somebody that you're never going to meet. This is people in your neighborhood. This is people in your churches. This is people in your schools. You, you know people with prenatal alcohol exposure. And, and you, you may, depending on where you live and in your circle, you may be surrounded, um, but just not diagnosed. So we do the one hour and then we do a six hour and the six hour is a big deep dive. We talk about FASD again, like then we really break down for about a, over a good hour or so really looking at the brain. We look at what each piece of the brain, the parts of the brain do and how when alcohol, um, when there's alcohol damage there, how what kind of behaviors that we're gonna see. And then we spend a good portion doing interventions. And then we do some stuff that I think um, should be done in all of our classes when we're talking about parenting, but especially when we're talking about parenting somebody with prenatal alcohol exposure. We talk about risk factors, okay? So you can understand FASD and you can understand a little bit about parenting, but you have to understand that we're also just people. So what risk factors do adults bring to building relationships with kiddos? And we kind of go through those risk factors and then we flip them because now we're building a relationship with a kiddo and that kiddo is going to bring risk factors too. So we talk about those risk factors. We talk about um, helping counselors, social workers, uh, providers. If you're working with a family, walking them through identifying those risk factors and putting a plan in place. We talk about um, a safety plan, right? So I think for us, when I said the wheels fell off um, for my 15 year old with COVID, um, there are certain things that you, you, know, you would ask a parent, what is the worst thing that could happen here? And our answers would be slightly different, but some common things would be something very traumatic or something that you know, that is going to involve police officers. It's going to involve somebody getting hurt. It's going to possibly be a, a child being a remove or that you have to remove for a short period of time in order for them to be safe and you to be safe. So we say, okay, what's your greatest fear? What, what could happen? You think, oh, I'll never be able to handle that. And so then we build, help them build a safety plan. Okay, if this happens, what are your steps? Because we know that when things happen, there's a lot of emotion involved, but when we could put a plan in, in place ahead of time, it happens, okay, now we're working on our plan. You, you can be upset later, you can grieve later, you can have your reactions later, but in the moment, just work the plan, make this phone call, here's your next step, and we try to equip the caregivers so that they see that, yeah, this may not be too much fun, but here are the steps that you can take to get through that. 
And, um, and I think that's really critical for us is when we're talking about parenting challenging kids is having those safety plans in place. And then you just work your plan. I think that is gold. I think that is gold. And I wish, you know, when we had our son's diagnosis over four years ago, I wish we had that because I think that so many parents, when they're just learning about FASD, no matter what age, you know, littles all the way to teens and young adults, I think that we, you know, we're so busy trying to either just learn about neurobehavior and think about it that we forget, okay, we need to have plans in place. And that's really important. And I think plans need to be in place like for the next developmental stage way before that. So like if we're talking about, for example, a kid who is say nine or 10 and wants to get on the internet or wants to get on the phone, you know, when we're, when that kid is about seven, we should be thinking about that because those things happen and they happen quickly. And then sometimes, you know, things happen and we're not aware about it until after it's too late. So I agree a hundred percent. I think that is gold. And I am going to include all of your information for those classes, especially that six hour class, but all of your classes, they're so valuable. And again, I just see you and what you're doing through Indiana NOFAS and through NOFAS is such an important resource for the FASD community. So that is great. So yes, safety plan. Oh my goodness. Especially in the adolescent years, you, you got to have those in place. <laughs> yeah. And You also bring up another fantastic point, Susan, is we get so wrapped up in the emotion of the critical moment that we need to like, okay, remember we need, we're the caregiver. We need to think about what's going to happen. You know, okay, this is our plan, A, B, and C. Not to sound like, you know, we're just robotic, but just to remember that, okay, this is a disability. It's a brain-based disability with whole body symptoms. And that just like if we had a child with a different medical diagnosis, we would need to have a plan for that. For example, if we had a child that has epilepsy, needs to be a safety plan in place, or a child with diabetes needs to be a safety plan in place. It's the same thing with FASD. So I'm so glad you're bringing this up because listeners need to understand that you, you have to have your ducks in a row. And there's a lot of ducks in FASD. It's not just, you know, it's not just a mama and her. We're talking about like, you know, blended families of ducks. <laughs> so, it is, it is. yeah. I think that um, one thing that I learned about myself, and I can do the plan, right? And so you, I work my plan, but um, it seems like, especially when you've got as many kids in the house as I did, that you're going from one fire to the next fire and you're working one plan to the next plan. Um, and then you can, you, I didn't learn how to grieve. And so um, I was always the soldier. And I mean, I'm a drill sergeant. Okay, I admit it, I'll own it. Um, <laughs> so getting the stuff done, somebody's gonna make sure this stuff gets done, the appointments, the medicine, the therapies, the this, the that, and everything else. Until um, I realized that I was I was struggling, right? And one of my friends outside of FASD said, "Have you ever let yourself grieve?" And I'm like, um, and I was, of course, we associate grief 
with death, right? Well, so I'm thinking about those big events in my life where I've lost a parent or I've lost this or lost something else. And they're like, yeah, no, um, that's not what I'm talking about. They said, when you are, if, if you think this in your head, it shouldn't take us 15 minutes to get into the van and get our seatbelts on before we could leave. You need to grieve because you're subconsciously comparing what you thought your life was going to be like with what it is. And there's a gap and we don't acknowledge that gap. And sometimes I think because we feel like somebody's going to flip it on us, like, well, at least your kid's still alive or at least you know, you're, they're, they're still like, you can try tomorrow or something. But, but the reality is that, that, that the same grief is debilitating. And, and we don't allow ourselves to do that because we're, number one, we can be busy. But number two, we expect so much of ourselves. And so we don't actually just hit the pause button and go, this is hard. And, and it's not just about how it changes um, their life and the grief that we feel kind of for them. We have hope for them too, but there's the, always this thing about wishing that it was better for them or wishing it wasn't quite as hard for them or wishing that they had more opportunities or more services or whatever, but it, it changes everything. It changes them, it changes us, it changes our families. Um, it changes how we plan for vacations how we go to the grocery store, you know, how we stay in at night, what kind of shows we watch on TV. And, and we don't just sit still in the saddle and let it wash over us. And it wasn't until I really learned that I needed to sit still, not rush on to the next task, not push myself, but actually feel and admit the depths of what I was feeling that I got some of my creativity and my parenting back. I mean, it was really killing my, my mental health and, and not really realizing how much it was impacting um, how I was parenting until I could actually start that grieving process and start healing from that and, and taking some of my mental space back. Wow. I feel like I've just finished a 60 minute therapy session and just oh. hearing you say that. And I'm not, I'm, I'm, being genuine. I mean, you, oh my goodness, Susan, we do grieve so often and, and every day too, and little things too, you know, so to be able to take that time to just say, okay, you know what, let me just, like you said, let me let this wash over me and let me just understand. Okay. And then it's, it's almost like you need to, you need that grief at different stages of your child's life because it looks different at different stages, you know, especially teen years, adolescents, young adults, you know, all that stuff. And especially too, as we know, when the developmental stage and the chronological age widens, we're going to be grieving even more. I honestly, I think we've been grieving, you know, my husband and I, we've been grieving a lot of these things more now than when our son was little, you know, we did grieve when he was little, even though we didn't have an official diagnosis until he was 15, but we, I think we're grieving more now because you can really see the gaps in the developmental stage and the chronological age. So that's really important. And I'm so glad you're bringing this up. And that means that we as caregivers 
not only do we need to take care of ourselves and, you know, we, we joke, you know, self-care, ha ha, but we really need to find, you know, even if it's just pockets throughout the day where we can just, just stop for a minute and just say, okay, am I, am I functioning, functioning in critical mode or am I functioning in, okay, you know, (laughs) decent mode, you know, am I at least in the yellow zone and not in the red zone, you know? I think that's critical because we, we do, we forget to do that or we are stoic because we have to be stoic. Mm -hmm. And, um, so you're, uh, I, I love, love hearing this. So let's talk about the rest of 2021. We're airing this episode in the summer. Half of the year has gone through besides your awesome lunch and learns and your classes and also plug for the FASD Respect Act. We are, you know, Susan is tirelessly working with NOFAS on on getting this momentum going. What are some of your goals for the rest of 2021? Um, They're kind of two-pronged. I am the uh, NOFAS affiliate coordinator. So I have a passion and a goal to have some consistency across the country with all the affiliates so that you get the same training in Alaska as you would in Florida, so that people across the country are hearing the same thing and that there's some consistency, there's consistency in in messaging, that we're focusing on positive anti-stigma messaging. So I'm really involved with that and helping to develop and build the NOFAS network, identifying new partners, finding new ways to do things, um, for Indiana NOFAS, we are looking, we're getting, we're hatching an idea, and we'll, I'll share it with you here. Um, we, when we did our social media campaigns, we always came up, come up with a hashtag, and we tie our hashtag back. So our next hashtag is Stop the Bounce. And so it will be Uh, PSA from two different perspectives. One, it will be showing the parents who are chasing uh, services for the symptoms, right? Because they're going here for this and here for this and here for this. And and it will be um, from the parent standpoint. And then also we're going to hit it from the provider's standpoint about stop that bounce, make that, do that screen today, have that diagnosis. And so we're, we're working on um, developing our new social media um, campaign about stopping the bounce. Um, I think that when, for us as a family and even as a professional, um, when the wheels fell off for Jesse, he had uh, four cute between March of uh, 2020, and now he's had four acute stays and one residential stay from July 1 or July, beginning of July last year through October and the bounce, right? It's like our our mental health provider says, I only have so many doors and insurance will only go so far. And then um, DCS really needs to open a 10-6. In Indiana, that means that there's no substantiation against the parent for neglect or abuse, but it's saying just because of severe need of this child, they need additional services. Well, DCS doesn't want to do it. You're supposed to call the police every time, get this paper trail, blah, 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 blah. You know, in the meantime, you know, your family's disintegrating. You're living in constant stress. 
and, and it's like nobody wants to just come alongside and come on and say, okay, I can do this much. You can do that much. Let's put all these, this much is on the table and weave something together that helped meet this child's and this family's need. So um, that's, that's big to me. I'm, I'm, uh, and, and I knew how to navigate systems. And my heart really hurts because I know how to find those and I know how to talk to professionals and I know what waivers are available and how far they go. And my heart hurts for those families that don't know that. You know, they get shut down with a no and, and, and well, they said no. It's like, mm, yeah, they did, but let's go talk to them again because here's what we need to say to them about what they their service really is supposed to offer. So that's kind of uh, the goal for um, 2021 is to get the new PSA off the ground, reduce the bounce. Uh, we're working on um, training providers. We're putting together training through the ecosystem of training providers to make that diagnosis. Um, because what we hear from providers is, well, we need a tool. We, um, we have tools. What we need is for you to use the tools. Um, so that's, they, they're just somehow scared of having that conversation and what that looks like for them. So um, that's some of the stuff that we're working on. That's fantastic. Hashtag stop the bounce. I'm going to include that in our program notes, along with all of your information out here. Cause we live in, in rural farm country. I call stop the bounce. I call it stop the silos because for us, it's like treatment, you go to your primary for this, and then you go to the mental health for this. And then you go, it, it's like a silo effect, you know, or just like you said, it's a bounce effect where everything is so compartmentalized and it's not where you would look at care, for example, you know, for someone who's undergoing cancer treatment, it's all under like one treatment center. And you just, you know, you have your different allied and medical departments. It, it should be the same for FASD because like you said, you know, we know there's over 400 comorbid medical conditions that go along with it. And then we know that it's something like 93% of people that have an FASD also have a co-occurring mental health diagnosis. So stop, you know, it's like a pinball machine. You're exactly right. That poor family and that poor child, it's like a pinball machine. You're just bouncing from appointment to appointment to whatever. So, oh, I love that. I love that. So hashtag stop the bounce. So we're talking to parents now and the wonderful work that you're doing. What I think is equally wonderful is you're a parent with so much lived experience behind your work. So you are there in the trenches with us. What advice or encouragement can you give to parents who are kind of like in that I want to do something, I want to help out, but I'm not sure what to do, or I'm feeling so overwhelmed, but I know I, I want to be a part of this change. What words can you share to parents who are in that, uh, I want to be an advocate, but I don't know if I can do it. What, what kind of pep talk can you give to them? Well, I think everybody is an advocate. I think that um, you may not realize it. When somebody introduced me as a family leader once, I was like, what? You know, I'm just parenting my kids. I'm just doing what's necessary. I don't, I'm not a family leader, but, but I was. And I think that everybody needs to understand that 
um, we're all family leaders. Somebody's looking at us and going, wow, they've got this together, or I wish I knew how to do that. So we're all family leaders. And that makes us an advocate because anytime that we're talking to a school teacher, we're talking to in a, a provider about this is our child and this is any child, but this is our child. This is their strengths. This is their weaknesses. And this is a challenge for them. Can we look at relating this information to them in a way that could help them be successful? That's advocating, right? So we just expand that. And, and I would say that there's different levels of advocacy. Some people feel very uncomfortable talking in front of other people. Okay, well, then do emails, right? Um, help draft letters, help uh, do things where you're not in front of a camera or you're not being live on a podcast. Um, find ways to... Uh, connect other families uh, to services or share your experience on a more lower key uh, way. Getting this legislation passed is going to take all of us. And it's not just those of us that know fast and those are in agencies and those that are meeting with um, the policymakers and decision makers. It's going to be everybody sharing your story. Why is this important? What, what, if, if, if this money came to your state, how would you want to see it spent? What would this mean to your family if you could have this particular service or you could have this research center or whatever angle it is? Because it's a lot. It's taking the research that's um, out there and making it applicable to families. It's, it's bringing it out of the um, laboratories into practical ways and then building state systems. So there's a piece of it uh, all along the way. And so I would encourage them to be thinking about um, who do they know, who, who needs to know, and writing that letter, writing that email, sending that on, and um, attending, finding out what's happening in your particular state. Are there uh, petitions? Are there fundraisers? Are there things that are going on that could bring the people together. Um, and I, I kind of, I want to, I know that we're, we're, we're coming kind of toward the end, but I think that when I want to look at the parent and the advocate role kind of together, it goes back to like always being, um, working the plan, working the plan out, taking time for yourself. But I think that a good advocate is someone as well as a good parent is someone who isn't defined by words like they're an advocate or I'm an I'm a parent of someone. We are still people. We have individual strengths. We have things that make our heart sing that we feel really good about when we do. And that's different for all of us. And I think that as we look at the future of FASD and we look at where we can go as a country um, that it becomes important for us to be thinking about what, what do I do, you know, when I'm doing it, that makes me feel like, wow, that feels really good. And whether that's taking a walk or crafting or running or writing books or cooking or, or whatever that is, that we don't lose sight of losing our uniqueness and what we uniquely bring 
to any situation just because we are who we are. And I think that will take uh, the work of uh, getting this bill passed through on a whole new plane when we can start thinking about what, what is it that I do well and, and how can this be used here? Everyone, you're listening to me having a therapy session with Susan Ellsworth because everything she's saying is just resonating in my heart. I mean, when you're talking, I'm thinking about like my blueberries and, and my, my joy is like when I, when I go out and I pick my blueberries and I mean, you know, I'm, I'm the weird lady who like grows blueberries in rural North Carolina. And I even like name, (laughs) I named the blueberry bushes, which like is hilarious because yeah, we don't have animals. So we have, you know, trees and all that stuff, but it's true. You know, that like going out there and just being outside in our, our farm country, in our nature, just, you know, looking at the blueberries and, and picking them or just, you know, taking care of, you know, just anything. Just for me, being outside is like a huge way of me saying, yeah, this is who I am. This is what I love, you know, get on my barn boots and just go outside. And it's so true. I think so often, not only are we caught up in the bounce to bounce of going from place to place for our kids, for our families, but we lose sight of who we were before we became parents. And for many of us, myself included, we were in such a rush to become parents, whether it be through foster care, whether it be through adoption, whether it be through, you know, domestic international adoption, kinship adoption, we were in such a rush to become parents. And then we learn about our child's, you know, trauma. We learn about our child prenatal trauma. We learn about, you know, layers of trauma and, and we forget that we need to get down right down to who we are. And I love it. Find, figure out, remember what makes your heart sing. And that is just, to me, such great advice. So, and everybody has something they can do for advocacy. Advocacy is not this big thing. You know, I, I, I podcast, but in re- I'm really an introvert. <laughs> I just like talking to people, but I'm really an introvert. I like hearing what people have to say. But, but again, I mean, like you said, mailing a letter, you know, emailing or anything, advocacy there is no act of advocacy that is too small, especially in the FASD community. Right. I, I really think so. So again, you are just an inspiration to me, Susan. I just, I love following you on social media. I love going on the LinkedIn and seeing lunch and learn. You know, I just, I do. I think what you're doing is so valuable and so important in the FASD community. So on behalf of all the, the exasperated mamas out there and dads and, and parents, Thank you for what you do. And, and, um, I, you know, I like to end on words of hope because we know the realities that come with this ride of parenting, caregiving, child and adolescent, young adult with FASD. But we also know that there's hope in this journey and hope looks different for everybody, just like success and just like growth. It all looks different. Let's end this episode on, on some words of hope that you can give, especially to those parents that who we hear from who are just like, I don't know what to do. I can't do this anymore. What words of hope can you give to them? My words of hope tend to be just practical. And that is you only have to take the next breath. Um, we get so far down the road with 
thinking that we have to resolve things, thinking we have to have things figured out, thinking that, you know, um, we have to be, we're going to experience this, it's going to be traumatic, or we've got to stop this from happening or whatever. But the reality is the only thing that we have to do is just take that very next breath. And sometimes that's enough. One breath at a time, one step at a time, and, um, and let it roll. Because if we're thinking too far ahead, we're not in the moment, we're not really alive, right? And if we're constantly comparing the in the moment with what happened, I know what happened last time they did this, this is what's going to happen again, because this happened last time, then we're not in the moment right now seeing that this could actually play out differently. Because we're already convinced because of the past that we know what that's going to look like. And I know this is not easy. I, I, I'm not saying, hey, everybody, this is pie in the sky. But I'm saying if we got to be right there and stay right there. And as long as we're right there taking that breath at the time, then there's always hope, right? And everyone, this is not the last time Susan's going to be on FASD Hope because, again, you have that that trifecta of parental experience, you know, professional experience, and what I like to call just you you are you are such a support for so many people. You know, it's one thing to talk the talk, but it's another thing to walk the walk. And I am just so thankful for not only what you do, but who you are. Because to me, again, you are an inspiration. And I I thank you. Amazing words of hope for everyone. So Susan, how can everybody get in touch with you before we sign off? Well, we are at indiananofast.org. You can reach us there. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, Instagram, you know, all those sorts of things. But my email address is slsworth at mhai.net is my professional one. You can also reach me at ellsworth at nofast.org. That's a little bit easier to remember. So we'll be including all of that information in today's program notes and as well as um, the links to um, Indiana Nofas and and just to, to the wonderful things that you do. So Susan Ellsworth, thank you for being on FASD Hope. You're welcome. And everyone, remember, one breath at a time. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out fasdhope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.